0: Want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook. You can bet on every hockey game, football, basketball, and the World Cup is almost here. Bet pregame, live in play, or on one of our many prop bets. Made for Canadians by Canadians, Sports Interaction makes it easy to deposit, play, and cash out. Join now and see all that sports betting has to offer. Head to sportsinteraction.com. That's sportsinteraction.com. Ontario only, 19+. plus. Please play a response. This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild, powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook.
1: Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. We're going to do something a little different this week. Hello, Adam. Hello, Alan. How are you? I am doing awesome. And a special treat this week. We're going to have Jesse Blake, who is our producer extraordinaire, on camera, involved oh. in the conversation, asking questions and so forth. Jesse, welcome on camera to Asian yes, Provocateur. Yes.
2: <laughs> Thank yeah. you very much,
1: Alan and
0: Adam, for uh, asking me to join. Before the show, Alan's like, why don't you just come on this time and, and talk with us? And I said, all right, I'll, I'll do it. I don't know what I'm going to contribute,
2: but I'm here. Oh, yeah. Come on. Seriously. (laughs) Come on, Jesse. Alan, Alan, I I have a burning question for you. I know this episode will be released after Halloween, but I do need to know if you were going to be anybody tonight that would scare people, who would you dress up as? Uh,
1: A couple of Halloweens ago, I brought my old goaltending equipment out of the garage and I went to a party as a NHL goalie. Uh, which turned out to be a yes. really big mistake because it got oh. really hot wearing all my goalie oh. gear and walking around a party with my goalie pads on. So um, uh, <laughs> without being any more creative, I would default <laughs> to being a goalie, but I gotta say it was a it was a real mistake. <laughs>
2: I can imagine. Did it smell like your old goalie equipment?
1: It actually did. And that was a couple of people complained about it, especially my wife.
2: (laughs) Well, I thought when I said, um, I thought when I said, who would you dress up to scare people? Uh, I would set you up perfectly for Gary Bettman, but I guess that's a missed opportunity. (laughs) Um,
1: I hope. uh (laughs) I have a good, we have a good friend of ours who actually lives across the street from us Mm -hmm. who had a Halloween costume party uh, Friday night, and I was going with my wife, uh, to the party, and unfortunately, I had to send my regrets because I went to Columbus instead to see, uh, noted client David Yurechek play his <laughs> first NHL game. Uh, yes. And, and yeah. My, okay. My that deserves wife, another round of applause. We <laughs> can we just say? Yeah. And, yeah, and, baby. And my so wife, happy for him. So happy. And my wife ended up going as a B. By yourself. <laughs> and she was and she was buzzing. She was buzzing, but she was there solo. Amazing. So, so uh, I guess that's sort of the first question
2: is is you know David. We had him on the show before he was even drafted. You know, we got to hang out and meet his dad at the draft uh, behind the scenes, which was very very cool. He's a nice man. And uh, what's it like for you? Obviously, David is very specific. What's it like for you watching a client? take that first step onto the ice, usually alone in warm up, and right. play
1: their first game. Well, you know, you, you think of the momentousness of the moment and how, uh, players and families have been living and dreaming about this moment, their whole lives up until they take that first step out onto the ice. And, uh, a couple of, uh, things really stand out for me. Uh, I vividly recall uh, spending the night before his first NHL game with Jonathan Huberto. And we talked about it briefly when we had him on as a guest. Uh, His parents had set up a camper at a campsite and uh, we all went for dinner. We went back to the campsite and uh, we're just sitting there outside in Florida it was a warm evening, everybody's in shorts, and uh, I was going to drive uh, Joe back to the hotel. And Joe stood before his father, and uh, you could see his father beaming with pride and uh, gave, gave Jonathan a hug and, and said, the next time I see you, you're going to be an NHL player after the game. <laughs> and uh, it, it was like, I felt it. there was a lot of emotion in the air. And I drove Jonathan back to the hotel uh, that night from the campsite. And uh, we talked a little bit about what a moment it was and what it meant to him. Uh, being with David, he and I also went for dinner the night before his game. And what struck me about him in particular was he wasn't feeling any nervousness or butterflies at all. He was really, he understood what it meant and it was momentous and, and it was momentous for his family. But sometimes you get a sense that the players are feeling the, the nerves start the day before the game. And he was just really, Hey, it'll be just like preseason. You know, I played a couple of preseason games and it's fine. I got this. There was a real, not cockiness, but confidence in, hey, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to have fun playing the game. And I thought that was really cool.
0: Can I ask a question about something that happened pregame, like when you were talking to David beforehand? Sure. Because we've been seeing something pop up online recently from your social medias And that's a couple of your clients wearing hats that say noted Alan Walsh client. (laughs) How does the conversation go when you ask Marc Andre Fleury and David Yerichek to throw on the noted Alan Walsh client hat and take a picture with it?
1: Well, actually, here's what's going on. Um, I'm getting clients texting me. I got to get a hat. I got to get a, I got to get a t shirt (laughs) and, and I'm busy, you know, uh filling out uh FedEx envelopes and having them uh, sent out to guys all over the place so um I was I was in Minnesota and uh Mark Andre Fleury and his family and I went for dinner the night before the game and uh after uh after dinner um Mark's like hey let's take a picture and he got the hat and he put the hat on and, uh, we had a good laugh as we, uh, took, uh, a couple of selfies and took some other pictures. So, um, that was, uh, that was fun. I was sitting with David in the hotel lobby and, uh, and David just kind of grabbed the hat and put it on. And he's like, here, take my picture. Uh, so guys are having guys are, I, I'm actually surprised guys are having as much fun with it as they are. Uh, it's kind of cool. Right, it's it's cool that they're having fun with it, but uh, it's not like I'm one of guys saying, "Hey, please uh, do me a favor, put the hat on."
2: <laughs> well, I, I think the great Jay Onwright deserves a little shout out too because he says it on Sports Center all the time when uh, one of your clients comes up in the highlights. And he tweeted uh, he tweeted at you. I'm not sure if you caught it. He said, "This just makes me so happy. Uh, it's cool, right?" It's, you know what, Alan? What you don't often see um, you don't often see an agent out in public anyway. Uh, but it's cool to see the the camaraderie and the fact that there's such a warmth between you and your clients. It's very cool.
1: Yeah, and it, it's something that um, I really uh, want players to feel that we're all part of a family. I have a great team that I work with, from people in my office, to people on the financial side, to people on the marketing side. And we really are a team, and we really are a family. We work together as a family. And our clients and their families are part of our family as well.
2: That's very cool. Very very cool, um, Alan. You know, obviously uh, this this first month of the year, I don't I don't think people realize how busy it is for you. You know, I I know that um, Jesse and I uh, we never hear the specifics, but it's always um, it's always like, hey guys, I'm sorry, can't do it. Got to jump on a call. Got to do this. Got to that. Just coming up for air. How's how are things going? Like we have a group chat that's kind of going most days. But when we don't hear from you, we assume that you're pretty busy. The agent's life in October is a lot busier than people would think. I think a lot of people think draft, free agency, that sort of thing. Uh, but October, you're sort of winding down the end of training camp. What kinds of things are, are, are you dealing with as an agent? And, and what are the players dealing with as October strikes and the season starts?
1: Uh, a big thing going on in October is guys, who, you know, mostly younger guys, who have made their NHL teams um, are living in a hotel until the Mm. team gives the player a letter that's mandated under the CBA, which gives them five days to move out of the hotel and find a place to live in their club city. So we've had several players at and around the same time getting their letter letter from the club advising them to get a place to live, which is great news because that really confirms that the player has made the team. At the same time, uh, you need to find an apartment uh, or mm-hmm. a condo or a town home from scratch. Uh, and you've got only a few days to do it. Then um, you've got to figure out furniture. Uh, are you going to buy furniture? Yeah. Are you going to rent furniture? Uh, lots of guys have previously played in the American League, and they've got furniture in storage. And then it's a matter of getting the furniture in storage from a minor league city out of storage and transported to the NHL city. And you can only do that once you have a lease signed and the player is moved in. And it all has to be coordinated and executed almost perfectly, or you've got some nightmares on your hands. Plus, you know, some players are like, I got to find a place to live and we're going on the road for six days. So you've got to navigate around the player schedule and keeping in mind that the most important things are the games. You, it's our job mm-hmm. uh, to get things settled and arranged off the ice, with as little inconvenience and distraction as possible for the player, especially if it's a young player playing his first couple of games in the NHL, he needs to focus on hockey. So there's a Mm -hmm. lot of running around. There's a lot of logistical issues that we're dealing with the entire month of October. And it's just now guys are, you know, I'm moving in, um, getting settled and, and, and now moving on to the next phase of the season.
0: So someone like David Yurchek, who's, who's come over to a new country, new city, new team and everything. How many different people from like the Octagon team are working with that one client at once getting him settled?
1: He's in regular contact with about five or six people on, on our team. And, um, and, wow. and that's, and that's great because everybody has a different role and, uh, you know, there's, there's one person's role is to get David, um, set up financially. And that means getting the bank accounts open, getting the direct deposit letter signed and over to the club. So they know where to send his money, um, uh, getting credit cards, having a budget put together, uh, where you can sit and, and you know you don't want a player starting the season blind not knowing how much they should uh, be spending every month give them some guidelines give them a little bit of plan for the season and all of that gets executed very quickly so those are a lot and and there's five or six people involved from um, helping to find an apartment to getting the financial stuff settled to you um, doing some other things with the player off ice. Uh, sometimes uh, we're looking to get a car uh, and how's the best way to do it. Uh, sometimes we make deals with dealerships um, off the books for one year uh, where a player will just pick up a car at the beginning of the season and drop it off at the end of the season. Uh, but that takes time and work to get that done as well. So those are the kind of things that we're constantly working on uh, that, People never hear about, never see, and and really yeah. don't even don't even think about in, in managing yeah, that's a, pro- fascinating. professional athletes day to day.
2: Yeah. When well, you have a player like um, you know, you had some major players in the news uh, uh, this summer. Just great <laughs> great big contract extensions and trades and that sort of thing. Like a player like Jonathan Huberto, for instance, who who you know has a family, or Marc-Andre Fleury who has a family. Um, and they're and they're later on in their career right it's they're they're not worried about the letter from the team saying they made it the contract and the skill level they've already proven themselves but they've moved um, what kind of challenges it d- does it present when in, in Huberto's case for instance and i'm not asking for specifics um what kind of challenges does it present when a team player has been with a team for a long long time and they're adjusting to a new city new culture new head coach new lineups um, how does that work for you and what what part do you play in that
1: Sure, there's all of that, but then getting behind the scenes, um, there's uh, putting a house on the market in Florida. There's looking Mm -hmm. for a new home in Calgary uh, for the long term. Um, It's it's very rare to be able to move into a city and to buy a house and move in right away. I mean, there's a process that needs to take place. So there's finding short-term housing with an eye towards long-term housing, you know, what are you going to do with the cars? Um, the um, the Ferrari was uh, not going to be shipped to Calgary um, because of the weather, <laughs> and then there's figuring figuring out what we're uh, going to do with it, and then uh, figuring out uh, you know just getting uh, you know bigger cars, safer cars for winter, so to speak. So, logistically. Uh, you, you know, Jonathan doesn't have any kids, but Mark Andre Fleury has three kids, and schools are uh, very important uh, to to the Fleury family. And uh, uh, in, in this case, Mark and his wife spent a good deal of time uh, seeking out and searching for the right schools for their kids in Minnesota, and and that was a a process for them. Uh, so those are the kind of things that you really thinking about the player is going to handle the adjustment to the new city and, and meeting and getting to know new teammates and uh, integrating within the team and building relationships with um, the head coach and the coaching staff. Uh, I build relationships with the PR staff and the marketing staff of the club and work closely with them on how they're going to market the player what they're looking for. In Jonathan Huberto's case, um, he said to me from, literally from the moment he signed uh, the contract, he said, you know me, Alan, I want to be involved in the community where I'm playing and I wanna give back. So we uh, engaged with uh, Calgary's PR and marketing people and came up with the idea of a of a suite in the Saddledome. Um and uh and and it's been uh uh marked as Jonathan's that he um gives to the community. It's earmarked for underprivileged and under underserved kids in the community who can uh come to games and experience what it's like to to be at a game in a suite Uh, with their, with their friends and, and that's, uh, a remarkably rewarding experience, uh, and something that was very important for Jonathan to do amongst other things that he's going to be involved in that will be rolled out within the community in Calgary because he made it very clear. This is top of my agenda, what I want to do. And he's jumped right in to do that. Uh, and, and I think that's a wonderful example to set. Uh, for other players. Uh, Mm -hmm. It shows leadership and it shows a sincerity uh, of uh, and humbleness of understanding what it means to be a successful NHL player and be fortunate enough to make a lot of money and feel uh, an obligation uh, to give back to his community.
2: I, I think the next time we have Hubie on, we're going to have to ask him where that Ferrari ended up, though. Uh,
1: <laughs>
2: I have to tell you, you know, when I lived in Calgary, he made a good decision. When I lived in Calgary, I was young and stupid, and I was doing a morning show. And I had just made enough money to get rid of my old Subaru, which was rusting out. Uh, but Subaru was amazing in the snow. And I decided on a rear-wheel drive Nissan 350Z. And it was used, and it was a little beat up. But it was fast, and I thought, man, I'm going to be such a cool guy. And I got it in the spring when the snow had stopped, and by January I regretted my decision very much. Uh, So even with the snow tires, so I think he made the right decision not having the sports car. Uh, I can remember several full 360 spinouts, but I was going to work so early that I never hit anything. Thank goodness. (laughs) Um, He's. uh, I I think uh, it's also pretty cool, Alan, to see how quickly some of that stuff comes together. Because right, like he just got there, right. You would have spent the summer preparing for this, but we've seen the initiatives already start like the, like the box you were talking about. It's very, very cool. Um, you know, I think, I think, um, something that's come up. And and if, if, if you're Leafs fans, you know, if you're listening to this, you're a leaf fan, you know exactly what we're talking about here. Dallas fans experienced it this week. And it's the fact that, um, if one thing goes wrong, because the cap hasn't gone up in such a long time here, like really gone up significantly. um, you're going to be in trouble in terms of trying to replace injured players. And so this week we found out, at least thus far as of this recording, Jay Gottinger is injured in Dallas. And Anton Hudobin, who is the next best goalie in the Stars organization, cannot come up because they don't have the room under the cap to bring him up, which keeps an NHL caliber player out of the league. And I was curious, Alan, obviously we know you're not a fan of the hard cap system. But is there, even under the hardcat system, a way
1: around something like this? Well, the only way around it would be if if the injured player were put on LTI, which would mm-hmm. uh, take the player out of action for a minimum of uh, 24, uh, 24 days, calendar days, would be the quickest uh, the player can come off LTI. So if a player is injured... And goes on IR and not LTI, not long term injury. Um, that player still counts against the cap, and uh, that's the, the the window where players could get uh, teams could get into a lot of trouble, and and we've seen in the past teams forced to play um, with. Uh, you know 16 players, 17 players because they don't have the cap space to yes. call up anybody to to add to the lineup uh, and it's it's one of the many many reasons uh, I think uh, Gary's triple hard cap uh, system is uh, the worst system uh, not just for players. people will roll their eyes and say there is another greedy agent just looking for more money for his players and bigger commissions. And that's why Alan Walsh, you know, it, it's no secret I'm an agent. It's not like I'm hiding who I am and what I do, right? It's right <laughs> out there in the open. The show is uh, called Agent Provocateur. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, go figure. But my disdain uh, with the salary cap is, is really – more to do with, it's not good for the game. It's not good for the sport. You know, is it is it the best players on one team versus the best players on another team? Or is it the um, Montreal spreadsheets versus the Toronto spreadsheets? And I don't think fans really want to see spreadsheets playing against each other. I think they want to see best on best, and, uh, and and the and the cap has restricted the ability of teams to go out and sign players, and and more importantly, it has forced teams to move players they would never, in a million years, want to move, other than the fact they don't have the cap space to retain the players services. And that is detrimental to the game. And it's detrimental to the sport. It's bad for players. It's bad for the fans.
0: Jesse, go ahead. And the NHL seems to understand your point when it comes to the playoffs, because they take off the salary cap, and you're allowed to field whatever roster you want, because they want Best on best, so they would never restrict that for its most important part of the year, the playoffs. But for some reason, they refuse to not take that philosophy that they've let out, they've put out for the playoffs, and not put that over also to the regular season.
1: And the solution, it, it, it's right in front of their noses. You, you just need to include into the system a luxury tax, make the hard cap a soft cap, make teams pay a severe financial penalty for going over the soft cap, but give them the ability to spend into that area if they so choose. You know, in the news today, the national predators are selling for $775 million. Franchise values have exploded Over the last decade, Nashville, which had trouble finding owners and investors 10, 12 years ago, are are now selling for $775 million. And over the same period, NHL salaries, especially salaries for the top players in the league, have remained relatively stable. That's wrong. That's wrong for a whole host of reasons. All of these all of these avowed capitalists who made their fortunes right by being capitalists all of a sudden become communists when it comes to paying their players. Uh, It's a remarkable (laughs) transformation that blows me away
2: every time I see it. Well, it's it's the duality of man, Alan. It's uh... <laughs> you know, I, I one of the things that starts this month that I was really curious to ask you about. We've we've never really talked about this, um, but you know, one of the things that soccer does really well is big event, and they do it extremely well in, in the way that they'll let their players go. It doesn't matter what the league is, the EPL, La Liga. Uh, the Italian Super League, Bundesliga, whoever, wherever you are, they're going to let your players go and play for the national team, yeah. despite what their schedule is, right? Now, I obviously understand the governing bodies are different, but what the NHL seems not to be able to understand is international events create international excitement, grow the brand, right? I know that their their key demographic is in North America, but soccer's key demographic is in Europe, at least money-wise. And yet here they are all over the world, including the entire world. Uh, when it comes to the World Cup in 2024, um, there's a lot of questions around, are they going to go with the same format as last time? And that format included, as Steve liked to call it, Team Sum of Europe, which is just a collection of European countries that the, these are the countries we decided don't get a full team. And then, and then the young guns teams as well. Everybody found the young guns team exciting, but it was a bit of a gimmick. How sure. would you see the NHL? Because they do control the World Cup. How do you see them doing it differently, better? What would your recommendation be for making it more of a
1: world event where everybody's watching? Well, first off, World Cup, uh, World Cup of hockey is 50% owned by the NHL and 50% owned by the NHLPA. So it truly is a uh, partnership, for lack of a better word, uh, between the two entities, which is probably a reason why it's been so difficult to put these events on uh, on any kind of a a regular basis, which is a a great failing um, on the league side, because there has always been um, an interest on the player side to play in these tournaments. So, when we talk about some of the greatest moments in hockey, starting all the way back to the recent celebrations, the 50th anniversary of the 72 Summit Series, we talk about the 76 Canada Cup, we talk about the other Canada Cups and World Cups of hockey that have been so memorable. We talk about the Olympics and the Golden Goal and Salt Lake and so forth. Those are the some, some of the greatest moments. In recent hockey history, and for the NHL, which they say they want to grow the game, and they say they want to expand into new markets and new areas, uh, short term and long term, the NHL's global strategy, and it's not the first time I'm saying it, has been a total joke. So the entire strategy can come down to this. They send players over to Europe, usually in the preseason, although now it's gone into the regular season this year for the first time in a long time. They play two games, they play a couple of games, and then everybody disappears. And uh, to me, that's not a global strategy. You generate a little bit of interest and then you're gone. Uh, there need, there should have been, and there needed to be a lot more work done in that regard to truly generate the kind of interest that could exist in some of the major European cities like London, like Berlin, like Paris, um, and 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 not just traditional hockey cities, but move out beyond that. So. So, you've got this entity called the World Cup of Hockey. What do you do with it? Let's do it once a decade instead of every. I mean, the schedule should be Olympics every four years and every two years, midterm to the Olympics, a World Cup of Hockey, an Olympics and World Cup year two and year four. You shut the league down in February for three weeks and you play a tournament, a best-on-best tournament, and that is going to generate a ton of interest around the players, and it's the players that are the product, and it's the players that will sell the game, and if you don't believe me, go look at the NBA. The NBA has grown exponentially into the stratosphere revenue wise by selling superstars. That's Mm -hmm. what they market the game around. And that initiative came from the league because they figured it out. They figured it out that you need to use your superstars to sell the game. And the attitude, the attitude at NHL New York to this day is we're going to sell the logos we're going to sell Toronto Maple Leafs, New York Rangers, Boston Bruins, Chicago Blackhawks. That's what we're going to sell. That's what we're going to market around. We're not going to market around our young stars. We're not going to market around our established stars. We're going to market around the teams and the logos. And, and that philosophy is a failed strategy. They can keep doing it. And it's not going to work. You've got some of the most compelling personalities, some of the most compelling characters in the game. And everything the league has done for decades has been to suppress that, to encourage, first create and then encourage a culture that anyone who expresses any form of individuality who might have an interest in fashion, an interest in music, an interest in, in doing whatever. It's, it's suppressed. It's, hey, don't do that. Don't put yourself above the team because that goes against the culture. And everybody's going to get angry if you're one of those guys. Whereas in the other sports, it's embraced and promoted. Uh, and people find that compelling. I know players and I know many of them have some of the most incredible stories, and and some of the most incredible and varied interest in different things. And it doesn't come out because they don't want to tell those stories. Now, in fairness, it is incrementally getting a little better. Mm-hmm. But there is still very much that attitude from many of the suits in NHL New York, that no, 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 we don't want to create superstars. And you know why? They don't, it's control. They don't want players to have any power. They want to maintain all the control and all the power in their hands. And many of the players don't grasp how deep and how desperate the league is on maintaining that control over the players. They just don't grasp it. Um, because players are living their lives day to day with one goal. Win games, play their best, and they're very focused on maximizing performance. And they've got you know, nutrition and and mental preparation and skills preparation and all these other things that are going into, you know, being their best uh, and and maximizing their opportunities. It's 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 hard to carve out that other piece as a priority when it's so discouraged by so many forces on the league side. So. You've got this incredible opportunity called the World Cup of Hockey that could have been played and should have been played every two, every four years in off Olympic years on the two year. It should have been played all this time, all this time. And, and we had one in 2012. And won in 2016, and that's it. And now 2024, it's going to be eight years between World Cups. I mean, that's astonishing. That's astonishing. The opportunity lost all those years to put on a best-on-best best tournament. There are players today, stars of the NHL, Who have never had the opportunity to suit up after the world juniors and play for their country in a best on best. They've never been given that opportunity. You know, and if, and if it doesn't happen in 2024, it looks like it is, it's a go. But if it doesn't, imagine a whole generation of stars may lose that chance to play against best on best from different countries.
2: So Auditor McDavid's never worn a, a Canadian jersey as a yeah. as a pro no ever no ever. no uh, he was and a people, young guy Nat, and, Matthews never worn team USA and
1: people think that's okay people don't think that's crazy they're like hey he's never never I never done it okay like, big deal Gee, if if you're if you're thinking about growing the game and having all eyes I and and you know here's what happens. People become enthralled with a player's personality, persona. Um, uh, maybe it's what he stands for. Maybe it's what his interests are, where there's an aligning of an interest. And now it's like, I'm going to follow that guy because I like that. I'm a fan of that guy. And that player is now bringing new fans into the sport. And that's how the NBA grew their game exponentially year over year over year. And I've talked about it many times, but go back to 1994-95, the year the New York Rangers won the cup, and, and then Gary felt like it was the perfect time to come back after the New York Rangers finally won the cup and shut the league down for half a year with his first of three lockouts um, and killed all the momentum at that time the NHL was poised to overtake the NBA in revenue and interest across the United States. There was the big sports illustrated um, cover story. The NHL is hot and the NBA is not the cover of sports illustrated in 1994 and he blew it, and it and it damaged the game of hockey. It damaged the NHL's bottom line numbers for a decade, and 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 in and in in, in in my opinion, the NHL has never recovered from it. Because now you sit back and look at where the NBA is today, and the NHL is roughly half half of. The business of what the NBA is today, and and for that, and for that remarkable accomplishment, let's put him in the Hall of Fame.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget the extension, um, Jesse. Would, to, to expand on that point, wasn't there? I think at NBA uh, in in at Raptors game, there was two or three players born in Africa for the first time ever. Yeah, you know that yeah. was a pretty pretty significant thing it just shows the global sort of uh, way that the NBA has gone mm-hmm. and obviously you know there's challenges with with climate and that sort of thing in the NHL but you can build arenas anywhere um, it's a it's a shame it's a real shame that's really interesting and and you know Alan it's unthinkable that the NHL could ever be as relevant as the NBA now unthinkable you couldn't think of that there's no way there's no pop way. culture yep Jesse go ahead buddy sorry
0: and, yeah no those those best on best competitions the World Cup, the olympics they're the star maker events like the greatest hockey moment i think of my lifetime is Sidney crosby's golden goal that didn't happen during an nhl game that was during the olympics and like i still vividly remember tj oshi uh in the olympics when he was doing the shootout for the americans and they kept sending oshi back out there and he had like five shots in a row and that's another star making scenario and the fact that the NHL refuses to go to the Olympics like they did last year or put on the World Cup, it, it, they're really missing out on these opportunities. And I guess they're actively trying to not have these opportunities where these players can grow into superstars and have these moments on an international stage with a Canada jersey on or with America jersey on and truly like cement their their hockey legacy with these cool events that are best on best. But they're choosing not to do it. <laughs>
1: Um they are in, in, in fairness though, there were some ulterior financial reasons um that revolved around the Olympics decision in twenty eighteen. And uh mm-hmm. and, and that had to do really with uh recalcitrant IOC that um uh no longer wanted to pay player expenses to bring all the players over. Um, and it costs a fortune to do that. Um, mm-hmm. They also refused to allow any uh, any licensing of the of the actual highlights and clips of games for the NHL. NHL could not take a clip of an NHL player scoring a goal in the Olympics and put it on their website. Right, that would be a violation of of their uh, copyright. And, and there needed to be some flexibility there. Um, there's a lot of criticism that was levied, um, at both sides, not having a Olympic participation enshrined in the CBA, uh, prior to 2018. Um, there's, you could have opinions one way or the other. Uh, the bottom line is there really wasn't an intent from Gary Bettman and the owners to find a way through negotiations to get the players to the Olympics in 2018. And that was what really the the issue was. Yes, there were a lot of areas that needed to be negotiated and a lot of work that needed to be done, but they weren't willing to do it. And that's why the players didn't right. go. And, um, and, and there are still a lot of very uh, angry players over the fact they were denied the opportunity to play that year. And it's still an issue that the guys are still in the league right now, bring up on a, on a regular basis. It's still, um, they're still very angry that they didn't get that opportunity to play in, in that tournament.
2: On a on a different note, we've got a lot of questions coming in. On I just I asked it on my Twitter account. Hey, if you've ever wanted to ask Alan something, now obviously some of these things you can't answer because they're about current situations. But one thing that keeps coming up is people are so fascinated with contract bonuses, and so I, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, about maybe the 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 you know obviously with the cba as it is right now bonuses are sort of limited but is there a contract that you can remember or a bonus that you can remember in hockey that would just blow people's mind in its uh either in its scope in terms of like how much money it was or just because it was something completely different that people were not used to
1: well um i'd have to go all the way back to the, the 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 good old days when um i wasn't an agent but i was um Uh, My first partner, when I first became an agent in 1995, was a gentleman by the name of David Shadia. And back in the 1970s, David was one of the original agents in hockey. There was um, Eagleson, Dave Shadia, Norm Kaplan, uh, Kaminsky, Bob Wolf, and a couple of other guys. And those were all the agents for the entire league. There was nobody else. And uh, uh, David represented uh, uh, Denny Potvin, who went number one overall to the New York Islanders in 1972. And uh, David, uh, one night, was telling me the story of negotiating uh, Denny Potvin's rookie contract after going number one overall with Bill Tory, who was the general manager of the New York Islanders at the time, legendary, legendary GM. Uh, later went on to work for years in Florida in the early days of the Florida Panthers. Um, Bill Torrey was the architect of the Islanders team that won four straight Stanley Cups uh, in, uh, in 19, starting in, uh, in 1980 to 84. And uh, David and, and Bill Torrey worked on that deal face-to-face in Bill Torrey's office for several hours one day. And uh, David said at the end of the negotiation when, they were, when Bill Torrey thought they were done, Uh, Bill, there's one more thing. (laughs) What's that? Well, Denny's got his heart set on a baby blue Cadillac. And Bill (laughs) Torrey said, a what? Okay. A baby blue Cadillac. And uh, he wants that as part of the deal. And Bill Torrey got up, walked out. His face was beat red. And he was gone for about 10 minutes. He came back in, sat down, and said, okay, you got a deal. Um, so, you know, that would be considered, I guess, the baby blue Cadillac bonus of the NHL contract, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> doesn't uh, exist anymore. No, um, I suppose not. Yeah, starting starting with the uh, 2005 CBA, um <laughs> The, uh, ability to do bonuses he used to be able to get really creative. So for example, there was something called a deletion clause, which doesn't exist anymore. Does anybody know what a deletion clause is? Well, if, know, a, never heard
0: of
1: it. if a player, uh, played, uh, doesn't matter, uh, entry level, there was no entry level contract. You just signed your deal. Uh, those are the days of Alexander Dake and, and that era. Um, If you played a certain number of games in the NHL, your two-way contract automatically midterm became a one-way deal. So if you Mm -hmm. have a first round pick and there's a 40 game deletion clause and it's a three-year deal or a four-year deal um, as soon as that player plays 40 games, the American league portion of the contract drops off of the contract is deleted for the remainder of the contract. There was something called the revision clause. Anybody know what a revision clause is? No. So if you hit your performance bonuses in any year, the performance bonuses are paid to the player and in addition the value of the performance bonuses are added to the base salary of the player's contract for every subsequent season. So if the player had a hundred, so if the player had a hundred thousand dollar bonus for scoring 30 goals and he scored 30 goals, he got the hundred thousand dollar bonus. And if there's three years left on his contract, each year's base salary is revised upwards $100,000 each year
2: wow that's right
0: that's awesome for the player wow awesome for,
1: and 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 it was a league initiative in two, 2005 no more bonuses Gary mm-hmm. Bettman hated these bonuses. No more bonuses. We're not going to do any, no deletion clauses, no revision clauses, no performance bonuses, period, except in very limited situations. So you have in entry level contracts, you have the menu in the CBA in Article 5 of um, A and B performance bonuses. Uh, by position forwards there's a menu for forwards a menu for defensemen and a menu for goalies there is um the over 35 performance bonuses where mm-hmm. you can negotiate with a 35 or over player uh, on a on a new SPC uh performance bonuses um as long as they do a one year contract and there is the injured player Exception where if a player is injured and misses a certain number of games uh, in the last year of his contract and signs a new one-year deal uh, because of the unknown factor of the injury, um, there was that limited exception where on a one-year deal, the player can sign for a base salary on his new deal with some uh, individual performance bonuses attached. And that's it. So,
2: you know what's cool uh, about those, those new ones, Alan? Nothing. Nothing's cool about that. <laughs> Nothing's fun about that. No baby blue Cadillacs in there. I don't like that. I want some Cadillacs. I want to know that my favorite player just scored 60 goals and he got, uh, the team had to cough up a Ferrari. I think that'd be amazing.
1: And they <laughs> I, should could cough up the damn Ferrari, guys. I want the, the, uh, Baby blue Cadillac, the pink Cadillac, the red Cadillac, the purple Cadillac, until they drive you away in the black Cadillac. But that's the last (laughs) ride you're going to take.
2: I'll take the dealership, please. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So next question here. Um, You know, a lot of people, Alan, um, (laughs) a lot of people have, and I think rightfully so as a fan, a little bit of anxiety around the next CBA. And I know it's four years away. But somebody did ask, and I think it's important that you mention it. You've talked about it before. They're asking what the likeliness of a lockout is the next time the CBA expires. What do you percentage give it?
1: Well, I I, I would say that um, the the question is best directed at Gary Bettman and hmm. uh, and the league. Um, Gary's got three lockouts on his watch and each one was instigated by him with a very well thought out plan and strategy uh, before the end of the CBA in question. So mm. uh, it's, it's not a matter of let's try to negotiate a deal and we can't come to an agreement. Time runs out. So by operation of the fact, there's no CBA, there's a lockout. If you look back into history, and many people forget this, the best final offer from the league at the midnight hour when the CBAs have expired in 1994, in 2004, and 2012, all three times the final, last, best offer from the league before a lockout would be declared was something so radical, so unrealistic, so outrageous that no reasonable person would ever believe the players could in in a million years consider accepting it Or even consider it the basis of further negotiations. So, in all three situations, there was no real bargaining that occurred before Gary declared a lockout. In fact, if you trace back the strategizing on behalf of the league and take, you know, 2004, for example, um, it was telegraphed long in advance, that the league was intent to lock the players out as long as it took to get a triple hard salary cap. And mm-hmm. and um, so to sit back now on the player side, and I'm not the NHLPA, I'm not involved in bargaining at all, I have no role, uh, but as an observer, I would say – Uh, the people to ask on whether there's going to be a lockout in four years, which is when the current CBA will expire, um, will be decided uh, almost entirely on the league side. Wow. Haunting. (laughs) Jesse, do you
0: have any questions? Uh, What, for when it's a lockout, what's your role going to be? Like, how do you plan on, are you preparing for it? Are you navigating for it? Cause we have a discussion on the SDP about like, Hey, what are we going to talk about? Are we talking about Pokemon guards? Are we going to go into basketball? Like, what do we do? What how the hell are we going to talk how about? Do you, how do you prepare for a um, potential lockout, Alan?
1: Well, for, you know, four years into the future is still quite, a, quite a ways. I'm not sitting here mm. right now, actively, preparing for a lockout in four years. But I do spend uh, a great amount of time, especially with younger players, educating them on the CBA. I want players engaged and involved. I want them to express their opinions. And it's very hard to have an opinion if you don't understand the underlying agreement and how it Mm -hmm. impacts their lives. So um, I, I think there hasn't been a great outreach in the past at young guys coming into the league in educating them on two things. Number one, um, the current CBA and how that CBA will impact their careers and their lives and their livelihoods. And historically, what has gone on to get them to this point? And I think once you understand the history, and it was a big topic of of our of our last podcast. And mm-hmm. once you understand the history, and once you understand uh, with some degree of 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 education and and knowledge, the current agreement, you are then able to start saying, "Huh, I get it now. I understand." You know, what the agreement holds. I understand where my rights will be when my, when my contract is expired. I'm understanding now what it means to be a restricted free agent with no salary arbitration rights and how that's different from being a restricted free agent with salary arbitration rights. I mm-hmm. understand now the, the significance of being a restricted free agent with salary arbitration rights one year before unrestricted free agency and how the um, leverages within the system start to shift more towards the player's favor as they get closer and closer to the magic number uh, and reaching unrestricted free agency. Uh, players aren't taught this. And I think it's incumbent mm. on the agent more than anyone else to make sure, uh, the players he represents understand every step of the process, um, how their rights are impacted, what their rights are, and, uh, give some history as to how they got here. I had a player say to me the other day, um, we were just sitting around having a cup of coffee together. How, um, how did we get to free agency at uh, 25 if if, uh, if, if a player is in the league at 18 and how did we get to free agency at 27? And uh, how did we get to free agency period? And I actually sat there and like rolled up my sleeves and says, okay, here we go. Let's talk about <laughs> antitru- antitrust law. Let's talk about Kurt flood. Let's talk about the reserve clause. And, and they're sitting there with their eyes wide going, you mean there was no free agency? Nope. Can you imagine a system where the player owned your rights forever? Forever. Your rights were a series of option contracts that got exercised by the team in perpetuity. If you didn't negotiate a new deal with that team and there was no such thing as ever becoming a free agent and having the option to acquire your market value somewhere else didn't exist. And it didn't exist mm. for a very, very long time. Um, and, and, wow. and how it came about and, and players are t- today, especially young players, they're hungry for that information. They just need somebody to teach it to them. Right. And you're not, you're, you're not teaching them anything that isn't factually and historically accurate. You know, you're just saying, this is a fact. This is the way it was. This was the system. The NHL had a reserve clause until the mid-1970s. Um, the NHL was involved in litigation uh, in in federal court in the United States, where players had sued to get rid of the reserve clause. And, and there's a whole host of things that occurred throughout the 70s and 80s that gave way, finally, to the Great Awakening. Uh, which was the ascendancy of Bob Goodenow to the uh, executive directorship of the NHLPA and how that changed everything. Players are hungry for that information, but they have to be taught it. They have to be taught it by somebody. You know, whether it's the NHLPA, whether it's agents, um, somebody needs to be letting players know the history of, of what occurred and also explaining to them in great detail how their rights and leverages within the system will be dictated by um the their status each time their contract comes to a comes to an end
2: there it is if only there was a podcast that explained all of these things it's just a <laughs> shame i i wish somebody would just do that i don't know i
1: was sitting on a <laughs> beach minding my own fucking business and you called me so here we are <laughs> alan thank you
2: so much for today's show it's kind of been fun to jesse and i to be able to pepper you with questions and uh we know that there's some special guests coming up that people are going to be very excited about but um uh for now
1: thanks for the show and um, we'll see you next time okay you got it thanks for everything guys hope you enjoyed it and uh stay tuned for another episode of agent provocateur coming at you next week
0: This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's sportsbook. Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash
1: SDPN.